Well, good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Sunday for Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. We have another great show for you this week. We've got Kevin Walsh, one half of the famed Legal Eagles of Broom Law Group, standing by to help break down some recent litigation. And then we'll be taking a look back at one of our best segments. So sit back, relax, enjoy this episode of BRN Sunday. We're going to kick things off with a look at what is happening on Capitol Hill and in terms of legislation, regulation, automation, arbitration. Joining us on the line, he is one half of the famed Legal Eagles, is Kevin Walsh, principal with Groom Law Group. That's an employee benefits law firm based in Washington, D.C. Kevin, so great to see you. Happy thanks, uh, post-Thanksgiving to you. You know, Jeff, as we get into the uh, holiday season and while the days get and earlier, uh, at least there's light at nighttime. It's good to talk to you. Well, the pleasure is all ours. Um, let's uh, let's talk about some developments this week. It's the week after Thanksgiving, and of course, the week uh, of Thanksgiving, we actually gave you and uh, David a little bit of time off with your friends and family. So this is our first show post Thanksgiving. What I, I know you wanted to talk about some uh, a specific case. Um, there's a lot of ERISA lit- litigation going on. Um, what's top of mind? Yeah, so top of the mind, top of mind is is ERISA litigation again, uh, and one trend that we've seen, or one thing we've seen over the years, is there's been a lot of litigation where planned fiduciaries get sued um, on allegations that either you know the investment lineup was imprudent, and and plaintiffs say you know it has to have been un- imprudent, underperformed, uh, it has to have been unprudent, the fees were higher than we want them to be, um, or they say you know it was imprudent because ERISA basically says you're not allowed to do anything um, unless you have an exemption and. You know, the, the issue here is that, you know, litigation is expensive. Um, and some of these claims are, you know, as the Supreme Court said, you know, they want to separate the sheep from the goats with the sheep being meritorious and the goats being kind of frivolous. Um, and what we're seeing is that, you know, courts don't always, courts have had trouble determining when you say there's been a prohibited transaction. Um, courts have had trouble determining whether they're supposed to evaluate that claim at the beginning of litigation, or if they're supposed to wait until after discovery. Um, and as I've said, discovery is expensive. So what we've seen in recent years is that some courts and some circuit courts have said, you know, plaintiff, you've said they've engaged in a prohibited transaction. That's enough. You can go forward with the discovery. And other courts have said, you know, plaintiff, you said they engaged in a prohibited transaction, but you haven't shown that they didn't have an exemption available. So you don't get to go forward. And when you're defending plans, you know, one thing that's frustrating is if you're a defendant, if you're a plan sponsor, if your company says, you know, we know there was a perfect transaction, but we followed the law because there's this exemption. Um, it's frustrating if you have to wait until after discovery to explain the exemption. Um, it, it really increases costs. And so, you know, just recently, uh, the Second Circuit decided a case in Cunningham versus Cornell University. Uh, And there, the court held that when plaintiffs allege a prohibited transaction under ERISA, they have to do more than simply allege that the transaction meets the technical elements of being prohibited. They have to also assert plausible facts showing that there wasn't an exemption available. And, you know, one thing that I focus on is innovation in the retirement space. And, you know, the constant litigation in the 401k space has been 
a deterrent to innovation in some ways. Um, so seeing the Second Circuit have a holding like this uh, is helpful. But the, the thing that I want to caution is that right now there's a circuit split, which means that, you know, in some regions of the country, courts are supposed to say you have to plead that. And in other regions of the country, uh, courts are letting more cases go through. Um, so at some point, the Supreme Court's going to have to sort out whether or not um, plaintiffs need to both assert that there was a prohibited transaction and that there wasn't an exemption, or if instead plaintiffs get to you know move forward with litigation simply by saying there was a transaction that was prohibited, you know whether or not there may have been an exemption. So I know that's well, a bit wonky, Jeff. Well, it, it is it is a little bit wonky, but I think this gives people you know you and David are in the along with your other colleagues at Groomer, you guys are in the trenches. So I think it, it's always helpful, kind of hearing what what's going on, the kind of the. It's not combat, but you know, it's it's the the debates and and whatnot. I mean, if you're a plan sponsor, uh, let's talk meaning uh, someone who sponsors a retirement plan. I mean, um, you know, I don't know. I just taking someone's word for it that it, there is a prohibitive transaction. I mean, people say all sorts of things in order to get their agenda push. So, what's the takeaway here? That the net takeaway for people that are sponsoring fiduciaries that are sponsoring a retirement program or an organization sponsoring the retirement program. Yeah, so the, the the big takeaway here this week is that, you know, within the New York, within the the Northeast, courts have gotten a little bit more friendly for defendants. So if you're offering a plan, you know, you can breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. Um, but for, you know, plan fiduciaries all over the country, it, it's kind of a reminder that, you know, it's a litigious area and that you basically should have an exemption strategy every time you contract with a service provider, every investment you make, because ERISA generally says you can't do anything unless you have an exemption. Um, so it's important to make sure that, you know, whether your exemption is based on only paying reasonable comp to a service provider um, or if it's based on something else, that, you know, that you have a buttoned up and well-documented exemption strategy. But And Kevin, does it, is the is the um, the advice or the guidance? Let me say it, put it this way, because we don't want to give advice on this program. But is the guidance still document, 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 document? Uh, when you're talking to clients, when investment advisors are talking to clients, uh, other interested parties helping the fiduciary, is it still all about documentation, documentation, so that a year from now, eighteen months? Um, that's really the you need notes to be able to reflect back on how you arrived at a certain decision because it's i think the department of labor basically said it's it's not just about the lowest cost there are there are plans that have been sued because even though they they may use the lowest cost investments i mean a, a documentation jeff to me is it's an important step too um but step one is you've got to have a prudent process so it's have uh -huh. a prudent process and then document it so that you can show that you had a prudent process um but yeah they go hand in hand if you you know, act prudently, but you can't, you can't prove it. You might have a tougher time in court than somebody who had a prudent process and has the documents to back it up. And uh, Kevin, last question. Cause I, you know, I always enjoy one-on-one. -on -one, I mean, you guys are great together, but one-on-one, -on -one, it gives me um, a lot more time to kind of postulate and think about questions and interact directly with each of you. Um, you know, the, I think litigation plays a role in, um, kind of getting outcomes when people have been aggrieved or have been harmed. Um, but what is this, you know, does it deter? Because we talk about, uh, and secure was a big part of this, secure was gets get more people to offer retirement plans. And either it's a PEP, 
either it's uh you know through one of the state one products that are out there does that deter does all this litigation and the and the uh, now most of the litigation is probably going after the larger plans i would presume because they had the most assets and therefore they could also pay greater settlements and 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 pay greater awards but does it deter people for organizations from offering a, a benefit like a retirement plan or a, a healthcare plan or some other benefit uh when they know that it by doing a good thing and helping people um they could get sued maybe unnecessarily well i i think you're keyed in on a good thing here on a, on a big thing here jeff um which is that you know, litigation can be a helpful tool for, you know, encouraging people to behave in, you know, a, a better way. Um, you know, litigation has a role. But, you know, one thing that we see is that litigation by itself can be expensive, whether or not you are in the right or in the wrong. Um, and so, you know, if you're a big plan or a little plan or, you know, you get sued, um, this case is important because there's one opportunity to get rid of a case before it becomes expensive. Um, and that's what this case dealt with. But, you know, your point is, you know, if the cases are allowed to get expensive before we figure out who's right or wrong, then you'll end up with plan sponsors, you'll end up with plans paying higher costs because, you know, at bottom, um, you know, these litigation costs end up having to be borne by the company or by service providers, which ultimately leads to, you know, less benefits or higher costs for the plan. So, you know, it's important that we can sort out, you know, meritous claims from non-meritous claims because they they really do if we can cut out the non-meritous claims it goes a long way towards allowing companies to offer benefits and offer you know better benefits uh, and allowing service providers to offer services at lower fees and not have to you know bake in the cost of of you know going through litigation that may not be meritless yeah yeah really important i mean meritorious. i, I Meritorious, good, good meritorious. word. I think Sorry. I should go to. I think I should have gone to meritus. law school. I would, meritus may not be a word. I think I used meritus maybe five, ten times today. I'm sorry, okay. uh, you know, we don't. Well, you know, I got to tell you, Kevin. Um, you know, you guys are like a step up from my normal uh, chatter because you know I didn't go to law school, and uh, I don't have that legal acumen that you do. But maybe in a different life, I may. Kevin, we're going to leave it there. Give our best to David Levine. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and we look forward to having you both back next week. Take care. Thanks, Jeff, and thank you, listeners. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement 
with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're going to change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Recently, I sat down with Dr. Anne Gold Bouchot, a psychotherapist, to discuss how you can rebuild your life after a great divorce. Let's give it a listen. And joining me now to discuss this and a lot more, Dr. Anne Gold Bouchot is a clinical psychologist. She's also the author of The Parent's Guide to Bird Nesting. Anne, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about... Uh, I want to get into the, the, the what we need to know about potentially agreeing divorce, but let's start with a basic definition. How would you define a gray divorce? People sometimes define it as over 50, over 55, over 65. Generally, it's people later in life um, that it's a it's a trend of increasing divorce among that age group as compared to younger people which is a decreasing trend. Yeah, and, and I guess I'm, is this, you said it's an increasing trend. Um, how, how much has it increased? Because um, I find it kind of curious that people in later in life, when you need a partner or would like a partner, uh, but, but how, how increasing is the trend? Well, it's tripled since 1990. Wow. So, yeah. That is significant. And that's mostly baby boomers. And is there any reason why that you can find or in, in, in research or your own evidence why people have decided that they reach age 50 and above and they want to kind of go their separate ways with their partner? I think a big piece of it is life expectancy. That when the children, when they have an empty nest, when the kids have launched, they're looking at another 30 years and they're looking at their partner and saying, do I really want to do this um, with this person? Um, they're more financially secure usually at that age. So it's not as financially challenging. I mean, it is challenging, but it's not as daunting. It's more complicated to untangle all that if it's been a long-term marriage. Um, but people change as they get older. And when they're looking at a longer life expectancy, they see a whole other chapter ahead and very often, I think, are looking for something new, more romance, something more exciting. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if you spend a lot of time it, together with a partner over the years, maybe, and you're spending all your time uh, focusing on your children or your job or both of your jobs, I guess this, your paths can diverge a little bit. Are, are there challenges for for people going through this? Um, I, you mentioned some of the financial challenges, but what are some of the general challenges that people going through this, uh, men, women, um, whatever the couple uh, that they go through? I think there are many challenges. One is you've had a, um, a lifetime with a partner. A great divorce is usually after a long-term marriage. And so untangling not only the financial piece, but the social piece, the changing relationships with adult children, 
and a whole new lifestyle. Most people after divorce, you know, their lifestyle gets cut back. They don't live quite at the same standard of living that they lived at before. Sometimes they um, are in their intention is to find a new partner. Sometimes there already is a new partner and that's kind of led to the breakup. For older women in particular, um, they're more likely to have to find work. Um, maybe they've been home raising their children and have not worked in many years. Um, and now at an age when many are looking at retirement, they're looking at getting a job just to make ends meet. Yeah, and, and you almost, let's take women, for example, and I know my mother, she relaunched her career um, around that time and had a very successful f fundraising career. I mean, it is certainly possible for people uh, given the long, I mean, we're, look, we're living longer retirement, even though we're, the retirement age is quote unquote 65, there's a lot left in the gas tank in and, and reinvention, doing something you love doesn't sound so bad. It doesn't if that's your, if that's your goal. But in my experience, often there's one person in the marriage that really wasn't thinking about divorce. And if that is the wife, which it often is, um, they are faced with a whole new vision, having to completely revisualize their future. And, and if that means going back to work, for example, I worked with a woman who had only taught school for a year before she got married. And she assumed that her husband would take care of her forever. He was in the medical world. And when they divorced because he wanted another relationship and more romance, she was forced to go back to work. And she said, I don't know computers. I don't know technology. How can I go back to teaching kids when the world has changed in the 30 years since I taught school. And I think that's not an uncommon experience for women. But I think women can be creative. I had another client who began to make candy in her kitchen and to sell it. And she was really successful. So I think women can and do recover and they might have to be creative about how they do that at that age. Well, it's certainly a very interesting topic. And look, it's one that keeps on coming up. So it's something that we will continue to cover on BRN. I want to thank Anne Gold Bouchot for stopping by the program and sharing a little insight with the audience. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Sunday. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more in all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, then visit our website. We're back again tomorrow with another edition of BRNAM. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes.